Good morning, Grace Bible Church folks. If you're out in the uh, foyer, come on in. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark this morning, and so we have uh, a, a bit of material to cover, and I'm hoping to get to some bonus material. You know how uh, you get bonus material on uh, certain shows. So let's pray, and then we're going to hit the Gospel of Mark, hit the ground running this morning. Our Father, we uh, come to you this morning thanking you for the opportunity to um, just begin to warm our minds and our hearts up to the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless our time this morning. I pray that you would bless um, the Word. You always bless the Word. I pray that our time would be fruitful and useful and profitable and that we would uh, grow in grace and in knowledge of Christ. Lord, we need every Lord's day. We need to be with your people. We need to um, delight in you. Lord, we uh, pray for those among us who are hurting and who are in, in pain, particularly this morning, Lord. We pray for the Yepes family. Lord, we ask for your mercy and for your grace on Todd and on the kids. We pray, God, that, that your uh, kindness and your presence would be extra near and dear in these hours. Lord, thank you for the Gospel of Mark. I pray that this morning it would thrill our hearts with your wisdom in presenting the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So I'm going to go through this at a pretty decent pace because I'm hoping to kind of get to a, a, a little bonus that for some reason is not, has not been included in my notes over the years, but I've been continuing to study Mark. And so I want to um, just show you my favorite part of the Gospel of Mark, uh, just the way it's structured. And we'll, we'll try to get that to that at the end. So we're going to... Um, Start with some introductory material, and there's, there's a lot. Let's see if my, the clicker works. The clicker's not working. It's always, uh, there's always something. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of introduction here because the author is not an apostle. And so we want to uh, be real clear about this. Uh, the title has always been the same. According to Mark, 100 to 125 A.D. or so is that's not the when it, that's not when it was written. That's when the title was settled for certain. Um, <clears throat> we would say that the Gospel of Mark uh, was the first gospel written. I'm sorry, probably the second gospel written. Uh, Matthew would be first. Um, so uh, that's an issue we've talked about before. Um, we've talked about Markan priority, which is a a wrong thinking idea that since the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four, that the others must have somehow taken notes off of him, and that's, uh, that is not accurate. The author is John Mark. Now, he is called John, he is called Mark, he's never used those two together um, in Scripture, but we, we know it's the same guy, so uh, probably for him he would feel like he was in trouble with his mother if you ever called him John Mark, but that's the way we identify him. Um, <clears throat> uh, by the way, Side note, I knew we were going to get to a side note. It didn't take us long. Uh, one of the reasons that we know that Scripture is the Word of God, and this is a very, very low reason, but it's important. If you were writing a book to put forward as the uh, ultimate spiritual authority, and it was your job to make stuff up, would you have 97,000 people all named John in one book? No, no author worth his salt does that, except when it's reflecting historical reality. So uh, that's one thing. If you read through the New Testament, you say, how come, how come everybody names one son John? That's just the way it is. 
And so we understand that that helps us um, have confidence in, in Scripture. So what about John, John Mark? Just a few things about him. First of all, he was very familiar with the geography of, of Palestine. That's what Rome called Israel. He's very familiar. And um, in fact, he has a lot of geographic references, which is, makes his gospel very interesting. He understood Jewish institutions. He understood Jewish customs. Um, he has a background in the Aramaic language because we see about a half dozen or so uh, parts of John Mark that make use of Aramaic. This is the big one. Why do we have a non-apostle uh, writing a gospel? Well, his connection with Peter. Let me give you four reasons he's so connected with Peter. First of all, the vivid detail um, in Mark is, is so uh, clear. It's clearly from somebody who is an eyewitness. But Mark wasn't an eyewitness to everything that happened in the life of Christ. But he has details that only an eyewitness would know. Um, for example, during the feeding of the 5,000, there's a little detail that's only found in the Gospel of Mark that they sat down on the grass and it was green. Little tiny detail. An eyewitness would remember this. Mark, though, also was an ear witness to Peter hearing countless times about the green grass on that day. So there's the vivid detail. We have Peter's words and deeds. Um, there are more words from Peter in the Gospel of Mark, I believe, than in any, uh, any of the other Gospels. And so there's uh, a frequency about a half dozen times where we get significant uh, input about what Peter did and what he said. Interestingly, here's a third uh, connection. You also have Peter's words and his sinful misstatements in this gospel. The emphasis on Peter being humbled uh, and being humble is very clear in Mark's gospel. Now, why would this be important? Because Mark is recounting the countless times he heard Peter confess publicly how he failed um, while Christ was on earth. Um, if you read First and Second Peter, you get the sense of a very, very humble man. And so Mark recounts this. It's not hidden at all. And then the fourth connection is Mark would have heard Peter preach hundreds of times. The early church asked Mark to record the preaching of Peter so that they wouldn't lose it. So what does all this mean? The gospel according to Mark is basically the gospel according to Peter. And so he, Mark becomes very much the, the inspired secretary, uh, so to speak. You also have uh, a, an interesting little text about a certain young man in Mark 14. This is the account of the man who abandoned Jesus, not one of the 12, but he abandoned Jesus um, at the arrest, and he was wearing a linen sheet, quote, over his naked body, uh, literally in his underwear. I, we don't know exactly, and I don't want to know. He had grabbed the linen sheet. He left his home quickly because he didn't have time to dress to follow after Jesus. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. Why is that there? Why do you have two verses about a guy running away naked? Well, it is a Holy Spirit-inspired moment to let us know that Mark was there. Ironically, this is Mark's one shining moment in the gospel ministry. And it matches the humility with which he also writes about Peter. So the connection with Peter and the fact that, that Mark was there for, for many things, but certainly there for Peter's preaching, 
is pretty important. Now, the audience is equally important. The, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark were meant to be Gentiles, Romans. This is a Gentile gospel. The Roman church that encouraged Mark to write down the preaching of Peter was a primarily Gentile church. Yes, there were Jews there, um, but we would say it's primarily Gentile. And so they encouraged Mark to write down what Peter preached. And how do we know it's written to Gentiles? Well, there's a few, a few little signals we have here. Um, first of all, he explains Jewish customs in three different places. He wouldn't have to explain that if it was written first to Jews. There are Aramaic translation, uh, expressions that are translated um, so that a reader could understand it. A Jew generally knew Aramaic in that day and age. Gentiles didn't. Latin terms are used numbers of times, and they're not explained, meaning a Roman or a Gentile reader would already understand that. Uh, he uses Roman timekeeping uh, verbiage, so uh, that's something that would have been familiar. And you have the son of Simon the Cyrene, the only author who includes the names of Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon and Cyrene. This would be important if the audience knew who Alexander and Rufus were. Rufus, we don't know if the name is, if this is the same one, but it's conjectured, is mentioned in Romans 16, 13. And the Roman audience may have known Alexander and Rufus if they were part of the church in Rome. So, Pretty clear this is written to Gentiles uh, first. Uh, you may have heard it said that when you are encouraging either a new believer or somebody who is exploring uh, whether they want to become a Christian or not, that you ought to tell them to read the Gospel of John. I would say that's great. It's the, it's the Word of God, but I would encourage you to tell them to read the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of John is an evangelistic gospel written to Jews. The Gospel of Mark is an evangelistic gospel written to Californians, written to Gentiles. And so, uh, of course, you can come to faith in Christ from any verse in Scripture, I believe, but I um, encourage them to read Mark. In just 16 chapters, Mark covers a ton of themes. And so I'm just going to kind of do a flyover here. You have, obviously, the theme of God. God the Father is mentioned three times. Who's the center of a gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ, 81 times. He's the central focus of the gospel. He is called the Christ. He is called the Son of God. And I want to camp on this for a bit. He is called the Son of Man. And this is very important in the Gospel of Mark. What is the Son of Man? Well, a Son of Man is one who shares the, the same characteristics of a human being. And yet Mark, uh, especially in the first eight chapters, he allows the interaction and the discussion and the rhetorical questions to lead the reader to ask if this is a mere man. For example, chapter 1, verse 27 gives a typical question asked of Jesus. What kind of man is this? He is the son of man, but what kind is he? Chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says, My son, your sins are forgiven. He's questioned about this, uh, at least in the spirits of the evil people around him. And he says that he proves that he is the son of God, that he is... Uh, come from God because he has the power to forgive sins and so he also heals this man. He is the son of man but also with authority, with power to forgive sins, to heal. This shows his identity. Why is this so important? Adam failed. Adam was a son of, son of man, so to speak. He is a human being. He is the son of God. Adam failed. Jesus is the perfect man who succeeded. 
where Adam failed. And so he becomes our rightful representative. Chapter 4, verse 35, there's two sets of rhetorical questions. One set is from Jesus and one set is from his disciples, kind of talking amongst themselves. And Mark writes this in such a way that the reader begins posing questions to himself. Who is this? Who is this human being who is so like God? And so Mark really drives home the point that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Messiah. Another example, when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospel of Mark points out that he died with a loud cry. The Gospel also points out that this was very, very unusual. The centurion there even asked the question, who is this? Why is that important? Because you can't die by crying out on a cross. You die by asphyxiation, by suffocation. And so there's no air left. The centurion knew that Jesus was different. Why is Jesus different? Because he died when he wanted to. The, The cross ultimately didn't kill him. Jesus chose the moment of his own death. He cried out and he gave up his spirit. No one killed Jesus. He, he allowed it. And so Jesus has the character of a man, but in Mark, he clearly has the attributes of God. And so a big focus in Mark, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you have the Holy Spirit. But again, in the triune God, the, inc- the numbers of incidences of uh, mention goes way down. God the Father three times, God the Spirit six times, God the Son 81 times. Then you have the uh, theme of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1 is the beginning of the public proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's written down to to preach. It's written down for that reason. That's what proclamation is. So Mark is preaching. In essence, you could read the gospel of Mark and it comes off almost like a sermon. You're preaching the gospel of Mark even just to read it out loud. And one thing that's very important in Mark, every use of the gospel never means a written account. What does that mean? When the word gospel is used in the gospel of Mark, I know this is confusing, it's never speaking of something written. It's speaking of something that's said. And so in Mark, there's a, there's a big emphasis on proclamation, on preaching. Chapter 14, verse 9 The woman who anointed Jesus with perfume. The promise there is wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be remembered. That's the very first sermon recorded in Mark by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, repent and believe the gospel. He was proclaiming the gospel. It's something to be proclaimed. Why is that important? Because uh, the gospel isn't something just to be contemplated. It's not something just to be thought about. It's something to be said. It's something to be proclaimed. And we, we've said this before, but completely and utterly reject the idea that just living a Christian life is a form of proclamation of the gospel. It's not. It is confirmation that you are a believer in Christ, but uh, nobody has ever seen your life and said, you know, I'm just guessing that because of their life, this person must serve somebody named Jesus Christ who went to a cross, died for my sins, was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, and even now is interceding for us. Just by watching the fact that he was nice to his wife, I guessed all of that. That's never happened. They have to be told. And the, and the gospel in Mark is a clear example of that. Then you have the emphasis on the kingdom of God. 
But the emphasis isn't nearly like it is in Matthew. The, the kingdom of God in Matthew is huge. It's big. In Mark, it's more subdued. The emphasis in Mark is much more humble. There's much more the idea that Jesus is the servant. In fact, there's a lot of correlation between Jesus the servant in, in Isaiah 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, and the gospel of Mark where he comes as a servant. He comes in humility. You also have the theme of the power of Satan. You have Satan named. You have unclean spirits named. You have demons named. And this highlights in Mark the battle with Satan. And every time Jesus consistently shows his authority and shows his dominance. I, just for fun sometime, go through all the Gospels, and Mark would be a good one, and just figure out what you think the mood or the the uh, the intensity of Jesus Christ when he's dealing with demons is. It's not panic. It's not, okay, I got to really get stoked for this, this interaction here with demons. It's just very matter of fact because he is the son of God. He is fully God. And when he deals with demons, demons always do what he say, what he says. Why is that? Because he made them. He knows them all by name. He knows when they fell. He knows what their rebellion was and so forth. Now, why is this important? For Jesus to show his authority and his dominance. In the Roman world, there was a huge fear of demons, a huge fear of the spirit realm, no matter your culture. And yet Jesus comes and calmly exercises authority over the unseen realm. And so in the Gospel of Mark, what's the response? Who is this man? That makes total sense. Then you have the miracles of Jesus as another theme. There are 19 miracles recorded in the Gospel of Mark. 16 of them are in chapters 1 through 8. And so you get two per chapter on average. A lot of miracles here. You have the theme of faith. And I'm going to show you that if we get to our little bonus section at the end. You have the theme of opposition to Jesus and his death. The, the shadow of Jesus' coming death, it hangs over Mark from the very beginning. And you have that all, you have this cloud kind of following. And in Mark, we get really out of all three, all four Gospels, rather, you get three of the clearest predictions from Jesus himself about his own death and, of course, about his own resurrection. And then you have the disciples. The example of uh, my favorite literary part of the book that I'm going to show you will illustrate the disciples. Mark shows the disciples in an unfavorable light as men who were staggeringly slow to figure out the gospel and to figure out Christ. Uh, reason number 4,211, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Who are, other than Christ, who are the heroes of the New Testament? It's the apostles. The gospel of Mark, from a human standpoint, is propaganda that makes the apostles look like idiots. Why? Because they were. And it's truth. And ironically, God uses them to spread the gospel to the whole world. But Mark just lays this bare. And you see them in their, their slowness to gain insight, to gain faith. What's the purpose of the book? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore should be followed. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and therefore should be followed. So this is an evangelistic gospel. By the time you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you're very clear about who Christ is. At the beginning, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the preaching of the Gospel again. And at the very end, 
Mark 16, verse 6, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So Jesus bookends the gospel and is uh, just a terrific evangelistic gospel. We haven't done this in a while, but we actually have a Gospel of Mark evangelistic Bible study that, that we put together a number of years ago just using some of the messages I preached when I preached all the way through, through Mark. And so if anybody wants to do that, um, it's designed for you to invite unbelievers to your home. If you can get them to drink coffee and listen to a sermon at the same time, then um, why did we pick Mark? Because it's an evangelistic gospel for Californians. Literary structure. You have the introduction of the servant, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. You have his ministry in Galilee, chapters 1 through 4. And then the, the heart, the meat of the gospel is organized geographically. You have four withdrawals and returns from Galilee, going north, south, north, south, north, south. And so I've put the, the divisions there so you can follow along geographically with Mark. The end of chapter 9, now it begins the final journey to Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 1 to the end of the book. Now here is what is so glorious about Mark. One third, over one third actually of the gospel of Mark is the Passion Week. Is the week of the crucifixion of Christ. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. That's a lot. And so you get this, this wonderful slowing down of this detail of that particular week. Some key verses I'd like to point out to you. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is a gospel presentation right there, encapsulated. Well, I, I, I want to add Jesus to my life. No, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, I'd like to think about Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You get a definite sense from the gospel of Mark that you either follow Christ or you don't. There is no in between. And I want to point something out. Uh, You've probably read this. You may have heard this. And we use it as a metaphor. I've used it, but it's actually an improper usage. Um, Have you ever used the phrase or heard the phrase, well, it's the cross that I bear? You know, when, you know, I've got weeds in my front yard. Well, that's the cross that I bear. I had three flat tires last week. That's the cross that I bear. And we use it metaphorically, and there's nothing wrong with that, and that's how language develops. But in Jesus' day, for somebody to say, take up his cross, only meant one thing. It is to die. There's no other meaning. So we could substitute, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, die, and follow me. What does the Apostle Paul say in Galatians 2.20? He says that I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christianity is not something you add to your life. You die. And that's one of the great symbolic uh, gestures in the act of baptism is is somebody being buried and then raised with Christ. You have Mark 10.45. Another encapsulation of the gospel. This is Jesus speaking. For even the Son of Man came not to be 
served, but to serve. There he is as the servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. And by the way, a little side note, not give his life as a ransom for all, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus believed in limited atonement because he knew exactly for whom he was dying. And in Mark fifteen thirty nine. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, in other words, saw that Jesus died with a loud cry, which this centurion had never seen because it's physically impossible, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, why is this important? A Roman centurion, from a human standpoint, just about the last person who can get saved. He's a Roman, the people who invaded Israel, He's a Gentile who is not part of the chosen nation. And he's a soldier who just helped murder the son of God. I believe you will see that centurion in heaven because he made a confession of knowing who Christ is. Now, if you're a Gentile reading the gospel of Mark and maybe you're a Gentile who says, "Uh, I've done too much. I am so sinful. And you get to the part where a Roman and a Gentile and the guy who just murdered Jesus makes a confession of faith. Ultimately, truly, this man was the son of God. What hope does that give you as a Gentile reading this? It says, well, if that guy can get saved, I can get saved. So that's uh, some important verses there. Interpretive issues. Try to do this in most books if we can. There are about 25 major interpretive issues in Mark. Number one, no, we won't go through all of them. And whether you know it or not, if you listen to uh, the series we did in Mark a number of years ago, we deal with all 25 of them uh, as we go through them. But by far the biggest one, and not only the biggest interpretive issue in Mark, um, some call this the biggest interpretive issue in the New Testament, is should Mark 16, 9 through 20 be included in Scripture? Let me just read it to you. If you want to follow along, you can. Mark 16, 9 through 20. We'll start in verse 8. And they went out and fled for the, for, from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now you probably have in your Bible, beginning in verse 9, double brackets. Everybody have double brackets? Double brackets say that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. I would, I would say most of the early manuscripts do not include this. So what do we do with this? Well, I'll just tell you the conclusion. First of all, no, this should not be included in Scripture. And, and I hope that someday a publisher of the Bible um, has the courage to just stop at verse 8 and just let this thing die. But let me give you five reasons why some feel it should be included. First of all, the idea of an open-ended story Open-ended ending to a story is a reflection of modern literary practice. It wasn't common in Mark's day. They would say that this ending in verse 8, if this is the ending, they went out, fled from the tomb, trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. Reasons for inclusion would say that's a terrible ending. Another reason, they would say the idea that an ending was meant to elicit a response from the reader is a modern idea. They would say that ancient literature, almost always without exception, 
makes definite stated conclusions rather than subtly suggested conclusions. Now, I've got to say, that doesn't make any sense because this is a Holy Spirit-inspired document. And there's a lot of things in the Bible that don't adhere to so-called uh, literary institutions or practice from ancient times. A third reason for inclusion. Mark begins with a bold announcement of the person of Christ in chapter 1, verse 1, and ends, it seems, anticlimactically in verse 8, that the ending doesn't fit the beginning. They would also say that verse 8 um, ends with a conjunction. It actually does. In Greek, it ends with the word for. And that would be an odd ending. What are you going there for? That's, that's not even correct grammatically. That would have been very rare in all of Greek literature and completely non-existent in all the Gospels. It, it literally says this is an incomplete sentence. And then the, the uh, fifth reason they would say is that the majority of all Greek texts do contain verses 9 through 20. Now the question there is, uh, what are the dating of those texts? There might be a majority of them, but not the earliest ones. That's a, that's a whole other issue. There's five reasons for inclusion. I'm going to give you quickly 16 reasons why it should be excluded. Let's see. There, it is. Oh, there they are. Okay. Yeah, I didn't put the five reasons for inclusion because they're useless anyway. So we'll do the 16 against inclusion. First of all, the somber ending forces the reader to think about the cost of discipleship, not focusing on the triumphant ending. What's the cost of discipleship? Well, the resurrection has been announced. That information is sufficient. And what's the cost? They fled from the tomb, trembling in astonishment. They were afraid. If you're going to follow Christ, you follow him all the way, even to difficult times. The second reason, the final word of fear leaves the reader in an emotional and a spiritual state that really requires a response of acceptance or rejection of the Savior. And that's a, a theme woven all through the gospel. You have this word fear, phobos, uh, over and over again in Mark. The third reason, the conclusion to the gospel of Mark is meant to be the faith response of the reader. In other words, you are to supply the conclusion with your life. Not a satisfying literary ending. That's not the point. The fourth reason, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of Mark end the gospel at verse 8. Here's a fifth reason. I know you'll go through all these in your quiet time this week, so I, I, I understand that. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea lived between 265 and 340, was the first to write his doubts over the longer ending. He notes that at his time, almost all the available copies of Mark did not have the long ending. Almost all of them did not have it. Sixth reason, the narrative, the story changes abruptly from verse 8 to, to verse 9. There's no way to harmonize this in Greek. Uh, let me give you a, a, an example. It would be like saying, <clears throat> uh, the, the child went down the street and he found his toy and all was well. That will be 1995. Would you like paper or plastic? It's, it's in Greek, it's just abrupt. It's like a total shift, a total change. Number seven, the written style of verses 9 through 20 is utterly, completely different than the rest of Mark in form, in language, and in style. Very clear somebody else wrote this. Number eight, the Indian appears very abrupt, which would give credence to the likelihood of a, a, somebody feeling like they needed to supplement the ending. Then in other words, somebody came along and said, that ending is terrible. We should try to cap that off a little bit. The ninth reason, Matthew and Luke follow parallel tracks to Mark until verse 8, and then they go in a completely different direction. 
And we would call those the three synoptic gospels, the ones that are the most similar. The tenth reason, in addition to these 12 verses, there is also an alternative shorter ending as well. There's a third ending to Mark that doesn't make it in some of your Bibles. Some of your Bibles may have some, some uh, notes about certain verses included in that shortened ending. Here's an eleventh reason. The longer ending was not in circulation until the middle of the second century. That's a full century after the gospel was written. Uh, let me ask you a question. If I came to you today and said, <clears throat> uh, they have just discovered that there is chapter 17 of the book of Romans, and we didn't discover it until 200 AD, go ahead and add it into your Bibles. What would you, you would say, no, I'm not going to do that. I would prefer to stick with the original. And so that's, that's a major problem. Twelfth reason, verse 9 begins with a masculine pronoun, he. This has to have a male antecedent. A pronoun has to have a, a reference, something before it. What's the, what's the first personal verb before he? It's the women. So that doesn't work. Number 13, the major theme of the proclamation of the gospel doesn't appear anywhere in verses 9 through 20. In, in other words, um, uh, it, it's not emphasized the way it is in the rest of the, in the, rest of the gospel. Um, number 14, the signs mentioned in verses 9 through 20 don't appear anywhere else in any of the four gospels. Now, what signs are we talking about? Well, I said we're going to read this. Let, let's read it. Verse 9, and I say verse with air quotes. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. You'll notice when we have the Lord's table once a month here, we don't have a poison table also, if you would prefer that. Verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the, war, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, there it is. The signs mentioned here, the casting out of demons, the speaking in new tongues, um, that, that sign is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, but not in the, in the Gospels, picking up serpents with their hands. How many commands in the New Testament to Christians do we have to cast out demons? Anybody know? Zero. There are no commands to do that, including in the Gospels. There are examples of apostles doing that, but that's the work of an apostle. Any commands to uh, drink deadly poison? No. Now, I know that some church potlucks feel that way sometimes, but picking up serpents? Entire church practices based on picking up serpents, especially in Tennessee and Arkansas. That's just kind of in that area. So it just doesn't make sense from a sign standpoint. Number 15, 
Some of this sounds familiar. In fact, almost all of it sounds familiar because most of it is cherry-picked from other Gospels. It's just kind of pulled out. Um, we don't know who it came from, but we know where. People started picking things out of other Gospels, other New Testament books, putting them together. Verse 9 is from Luke chapter 8. Verse 10 is from John 20, verse 18. Verse 12 is taken from Luke 24. There are other things taken from Luke 24, from Matthew 28, from John 20, Matthew 28. And so you have just this kind of cherry-picking idea here. One more, number 16. The final word in Mark, fear, is to express amazement, wonder, and awe. He uses this word 12 times through the gospel. Amazement, wonder, awe, fear. These are all hallmarks of the gospel, and it would be actually a perfect, beautiful ending to end on that word. I'll give you an example. Later on uh, this morning, I'm going to read to you Paul's sermon in the city of Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> I try to end sermons on a fairly positive note. Paul ends his sermon with a watch out that you don't go to hell. Let's close in prayer. Kind of that kind of a thing. That's what Mark does. You get to the end of Mark and the last word is fear. You've just read about the son of God who is the son of man who is the one who can save you from your sins. What's it meant to do to the reader? It's meant to make you what? Afraid. And to run to the cross and run to Christ. So I, I actually think even from a literary standpoint, it's a perfect ending. Absolutely perfect. So, there we are in Mark. We made it through. I want to show you my favorite part of the book. And this may seem a little nerdy, and I apologize if it does, but if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. My favorite part of Mark is a technique that he uses. Some would call it inclusio, um, an inclusio is just a, a literary section that begins and ends the same way. It kind of tells you these are the bookends. This is way more complex than that. Nine different times in the Gospel of Mark, he uses, and the best way to think about this is what some have called a sandwich technique. It's similar to inclusio, but way more complex. The sandwich technique basically says this, that you have the first piece of bread, and the first piece of bread is an event or a saying or a sermon. You have the other piece of bread, which is very, very similar, if not almost identical, to the first piece of bread. And these two pieces of bread help explain everything that's in the middle. And everything that's in the middle helps explain these two pieces of bread. Let me walk through one of them with you. This is my favorite one. We have 10 minutes or so. My favorite one, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, what is unusual about this miracle? 
It's the only two-stage miracle Jesus ever did. And, and you, almost, you almost think, well, could he, could he not do it right the first time? Or did he just not uh, put, enough, um, put enough spit on there? I know that that's weird for us. In the ancient world, spit and saliva was considered a, to have healing properties. What do the little kids do when they cut their arm? They spit on it, right? So why is this a two-stage miracle? First of all, look at, look at what this man is doing. He's a blind man who has to be led by the hand. He is reticent. He is fearful. He is hesitant. He has to be led by the hand. Jesus spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him. Do you see anything? What does he see? Well, he says, I see people, but they're like trees walking. It's like having cataracts. It's, there's, a, there's a fogginess. It's a partial healing. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So it's this hesitancy. It's this reticence. It's this slowness of having your eyes opened. Okay, first piece of bread. Now, turn to Mark chapter 10 at the very end. Remember that blind man, the, the first piece of bread, that blind man who is reticent, who is hesitant, who the healing from Jesus takes time. It's, it, it, it's slow. <clears throat> that other man had to be led by the hand. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak even, except to, except to say, I see people and they look like trees walking. There's a hesitance. Mark 10, verse 46. Here's the other piece of bread. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples... And a great crowd, Bartimaeus, he's named. The other blind man isn't named. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Do you see the difference? The first blind man, hesitant, barely speaking, not even named, has to be led around. This guy, Bartimaeus, he jumps up. And he calls out to Jesus, what is the entire point of these first two pieces of bread? It's in verse 52. Your faith has, literally in Greek, saved you. Your faith has saved you. Now, what's the meat in between? Go back to chapter 8. The meat in between. What you will expect is to see a progression. Bread number one, slow to come to healing. Bread number two, quick to come to healing. And it's about faith. It's not about the healing. It's about faith. Chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And then we get this classic question, verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered them, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone. And that's great. That's a good start. 
But now you have three major events. Chapter 8, verse 31. He began, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 31 at the end. He's telling them that he must be killed and after three days he'll rise again. What does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He was teaching his disciples, verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid of him. What did the disciples do right after this? They get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And then... Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, they began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's the third prediction of the death and resurrection of Christ. By the way, whenever Christ predicts his death, always predicted his resurrection too. What did the disciples do? They're, they're 0 for 2 so far. What are they going to do after this time? James and John and other gospels tell us that his mother, their mother was there as well, said, when you come into your kingdom, can we be guy number two and guy number three? Can we be the most powerful? 0 for 3. Swing the miss, swing the miss, swing the miss. These disciples strike out. Their faith is slow. Go back to uh, chapter 9. Verse 38. Here are your great apostles. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. What does that tell you? First of all, they're selfish. They want power for themselves. Second, they couldn't stop him. Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. In other words, the gospel is growing and they don't get it. What is the meat in the sandwich? The meat in the sandwich is the slowness of faith of the apostles themselves. Illustrated first by the blind man who saw people like trees walking but does that give you hope for our apostles? Yes, because when Bartimaeus is healed, he has full faith. And what's the whole point to a Gentile reader? Even the apostles were slow, but what must you come to? Your faith will save you. You must have faith. I just love that. There's eight other times in Mark's gospel that he does this. And it's not that hard to track um, I, I didn't do them all at once. I, I regret that. I might uh, go back and preach all nine of them in one message. I think that would be interesting um, to do that. But as you go through John, or Mark rather, when you see this little incident looks really familiar and it's compared to one, a, a chapter or two or three away, look at those two and figure out what's in between. And you, you have a built-in commentary right in the, in the book itself. There's no human being on earth that could think of this. This is purely the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? The gospel of Mark is meant to be dug into, to be, to be contemplated and read by an unbeliever and to get to the end and to say, and this is why I, I don't like 
Mark 9, 16, 9 through 20 being included in Bibles. Because when I talk to an unbeliever and I say, read the Gospel of Mark, but the last part doesn't count, they're going to say, well, what kind of Bible do you have then? That's why I don't want it in there. But if you can find them a copy that <laughs> doesn't have verses 9 through 20, and they end with trembling, astonishment, fear, that makes them think. And so that's the whole point of the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for letting me share that little bonus uh, feature with you. I, I love that. It is, it is tremendous um, to me. So we actually have a couple of minutes to ask questions. I know this is odd. So what questions do you have? You could uh, ask about Mark or you can ask about anything else. So either way is fine. And I won't make the sheep and goats joke this time. I know that's grown old, especially for the goats over here. So yes, Ed. Yeah. Yes. It it was. And if and if somebody would just do a little study and at least wonder why does this section have two brackets in it in every English Bible ever published? And why is it there? Yeah, that is sad. Um and that's a classic example of cherry picking the parts of scripture that, that you like. Um when I preached uh through this and, and we got to this part, I told a couple of stories. There are men who have died handling snakes because they think that this is what you're supposed to do. It's a sign of an unbeliever. Um, it's just it's crazy. Yes, Robin, and then we'll go over here to Debbie. Um, you preached a sermon um, quite some time ago on the passages of the Obedience Creed Bible. Mm-hmm. John chapter 8. Yes. yes. John 8, the situation there, and then I'm, and then I'm going to answer Debbie's question, and then I'm going to tell you one thing I forgot about. So I'm just putting that out there because I won't remember. Uh, John 8, the, this is, the, this is the, the time when a, an adulterous woman is brought to Jesus, and he writes in the dirt, um, and nobody knows what he's, what he's writing, but he lets her go. He says, this is where he says, uh, if anyone is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Right, and he, and he tells her to repent and to go her way, and she's forgiven. The difference between these, Mark chapter 9 is added in there, taken from a bunch of other sources in Scripture, put together rather badly, and, or Mark chapter 16, verse 9, put together rather badly and doesn't make any sense. John 8 was almost certainly not part of the original manuscripts of the Gospel of John, but it was very, very clearly a story that really happened and one that the apostles knew about. And so we put it in brackets, kind of like a second-hand story. We're not, going to, um, uh, we're not going to hang our life verse on this. I know that's, that's terrible. You know, oh, John chapter 8 is my life verse in there. But it was, it was an apostolic, um, well-known story that almost certainly happened. And so there's a lot more likelihood of that being useful. So when I've preached through that, we preach the other passages around it that, um, that help support the truths of that. Way different than the Mark uh, 16. Uh, I'm very comfortable leaving John 8 in there because it was well known to the apostles and because it was something that, that likely, almost certainly really did happen. We just don't put the same weight on it as we do on inspired scripture. Um, so put it this way. When you read about, uh, I told you last Sunday night, about the city of Terza, city of Terza in northern Israel, a beautiful city with farms and, and things like that. Uh, th- the New Testament doesn't have 
a description of the city of Terza, except that there's a city and where it is. But when I gave you historical facts that not, are not in Scripture but support Scripture, would you say, I'm going to memorize 10 things about the city of Terza to really bolster my walk with the Lord? You wouldn't say that, but do you think I'm lying either? No, it's supporting facts. So John 8 would be in that category of supportive facts um, that I'm just not going to take as Scripture. Mark 16, verse 9, totally different. There's, there's things in there pulled from lots of Gospels and some things just made up. So we, wouldn't, we would put it in a different category. Does that help a little bit? I, I would see them very differently. Debbie. It, it does. Yeah, it, it does. It sounds a little bit. It, it, it may have been, well, hey, this happened to Paul. You know, it might happen to you too. I would put that in the, in the th- there's a reason the charismatics love this passage. Um, first of all, it's funny to me that they're drawn to one passage, it's not even scripture, but they're drawn to it because it's, it has the big, the big uh, uh, extravagant things. And one of the hallmarks of charismatic theology is if it, if it happened to the apostles, it ought to happen to you, up to and including getting bitten by snakes. Um, the drinking the poison part, I don't know where that came from. So let me tell you one other thing about um, just kind of a, I guess, a church history note. A um, <clears throat> little church history note. There are very few men uh, in church history who have literally preached every single verse of the New Testament, and our friend John MacArthur is one of them. Historically, the Gospel of Mark is often the last one preached in a lengthy ministry. That's just kind of the way it's been. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Um, I have heard Dr. MacArthur read the scriptures many, many times, and he has a he has a uh, an eloquent way of reading scripture because it re- re- reflects the heaviness and the weightiness of scripture. I also heard him uh, read Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. And I'll give you some trivia about it, but here's how he read it. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been. He kind of go. Sounds like he's reading the newspaper. Well, it reflected his theology to understand this. Here's a little-known fact. John MacArthur preached thousands of sermons over 40 years through the New Testament. The last sermon he preached in the New Testament was Mark 16, 9 through 20. And he preached why you can believe the Scriptures, but not this passage. Um, I just mentioned that because I was there when he did it. It was on a Sunday evening in 2009, and uh, everyone there knew that this was the last sermon in the New Testament that he was ever going to do, ironically, on a passage that we don't accept as Scripture. So that was kind of ironic. So he did that, and there was a six-minute standing ovation uh, at the end of that time, and rightly so. But it, it was just ironic that the very last sermon he does in all the New Testament is on a passage that we don't take as, as historic. Um, lots of great verses in there, but just leave them where they were. You don't have to pull them out and start something new. Um, one of the reasons, by the way, I don't like it when people take Bible verses, put them together in their own form and call it scripture is because that's exactly what the Koran is. The Koran is 75% Old Testament ripped out of context because when you make up a new religion, it's a lot easier just to steal something else. So that's, to me, this is almost Koran-like. Um, leave it alone, leave it in its context. So, 
Did we get to all the questions? I think we did. One more. We'll do one more question. Yes. I don't know. Is it in there? I, I have one at home, but I haven't. I need to look. And they have like a longer yeah, well, that's why there's so many, um, there's so many versions of it. I actually know the, the guy who is um, heading up the Legacy Standard Bible. So I'm going to find out and I will email him and say, you guys need to take this out. Um, so, and I understand you have footnotes and everything, but if I'm a new believer or a, I don't want to get to a part of my Bible and have it say, this might not be Bible. What? I don't want to know that. That's not helpful. Okay, good question. All right, we should pray. Thank you for, for listening. Thank you, Lord, for, um, I, I know we've gotten into some details here, but your word is eternal. It's fascinating. It's immense. How many questions will be answered uh, in heaven, Lord, where there's so, so many? Uh, I, I don't know how copies of the Bible work in heaven. But I know when I get there, I want to grab one as soon as I can because I have a lot of questions. And how we look forward to those answers, Lord. How we look forward to uh, what Psalm 16 says, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that we will learn these things. Lord, most of all, I pray that the Gospel of Mark would continue to be used as the Word of Christ to bring many, many lost souls to faith. Use the Gospel of Mark amongst our own people here, Lord, to encourage them that we serve a God who is so gracious that he would send his one and only son to die in our place. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.